This morning, our scripture text is continuing in the book of 1 Peter. How great it is to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hang on to that thought. As we read through this text, we'll see that Jesus Christ is Lord over all, and even our circumstances. Even those trials and suffering that might come our way, He is Lord over all. And that gives us hope in the midst of those trials and adversity. I'll open this morning with a question. Have you ever faced a trial? (laughs) You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) Have you ever experienced suffering? Has any form of adversity come your way? I think we know the answer to that. (laughs) But yet, sometimes we're not prepared. At times, we're not prepared to know that that suffering, it's what its reason is and what the reasoning and the purpose is. We're not prepared to even know that it's coming at times. It surprises us. But yet, the Bible teaches us to expect that adversity will come your way. It teaches us to expect that you're going to experience some type of suffering You're going to go through some type of trial. As a matter of fact, I've heard some preachers put it this way. You're either in a trial, about to go through a trial, or you just came out of a trial. You know, that seems to be the cycle in our life. But yet, we see in Scripture that it teaches us that there is a purpose. And there's an internal purpose in our own lives. The book of James says, consider it pure joy when you face various trials of many kinds. And ultimately, because that produces perseverance in your own life, there's an internal, there's a a, a uh, self-introspective aspect of going through suffering and trials. But yet there's something, and there's a purpose that's much greater than ourselves as well. And we'll see through this text that greater purpose as we might go through your text might be highlighted or the the heading title might be suffering for righteousness sake or some form of that as well and we'll see the purpose that God has as we may face those various trials of many kinds that James mentions in his book in chapter one but let's read through first Peter chapter three verses eight and we are going to go through verse 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy." always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for your word. We know that you have given it to us to instruct us, to show us how to live rightly in your eyes. And Lord, you have empowered us through your spirit to do so, Lord. And I pray that your spirit would speak to us through this word proclaimed today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've already established that at some point we probably know we've either had some dealing with some type of trial or adversity you might hear or suffering as it mentions in the scripture here. So all of us are on the same page, sometimes needing or desiring an answer for why is this happening? Um, You know, God, what is going on? What is your purpose in these circumstances in my life. Well, see, verse 8 starts with that word, finally, and uh, most likely a, a, a summary outline of the book of First Peter kind of brings this as a concluding text for the last two, maybe three weeks of scriptures that we've been going through in First Peter, and we see there's a, a, a preparatory nature to verses 8 through 12. It's preparing uh, the, the reader and the hearer of these words for what's going to be spoken in, chapter thir- in verse 13 through the rest of the chapter. And it starts to speak of relationships. And it starts to speak of relationships most likely within the church. And by church, not necessarily just this body of believers here at First Baptist, but the church, the body of believers, those who would uh, be in Christ, those who would be followers of Christ, Christians, however you want to phrase it. And so it's teaching us, basically it's saying, those of you who are in Christ, this is how you are to get along. And it's, it's speaking as though this is preparing you for the trials and the adversity that will come your way. So finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What a great uh, checklist to start our days with. If we were to say, you know, as a follower of Christ, as one who wants to represent Christ well, here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to seek to have unity of mind with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to seek to demonstrate sympathy. I'm going to seek to show brotherly love and have a tender heart and a humble mind. Imagine how that would change your interactions each day, each week, uh, that you have with not just those within the church, but those outside of the church. If that's how you wake up and say, I'm going to take this as a checklist for how I'm going to handle circumstances that come my way. You know, I think it could head off any potential issues we had in life just looking at those, but it's more or less telling us that we are to treat each other and our relationships amongst those of us in Christ are to reflect Christ. It's to demonstrate the characteristics that Christ has uh, shown us through his life and also that we is revealed to us through his word as well. So instructions for within the church the checklist in verse 8, and then it goes on to speak 
uh, uh, maybe broaden. If you read the, the verses here, it looks like it's broadening uh, the, the audience and the relationships that we have. It's saying now I'm telling you how to treat those within the body of Christ, but now let's look at those outside of the body of Christ because we're, we're seeing this idea of repaying evil for evil. So there's an expectation that some type of evil, some type of hardship, some type of what we might just call wrong way of treating us, there's an expectation that it is to come to us. And I, I pray and hope that expectation isn't there for those of us in the church, in Christ, but outside of the church, there is an expectation that those who don't know Christ, they are going to act like they don't know Christ. And that means that they may not treat us as though we want to be treated. The, they, they, there may be uh, 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 words or actions coming towards us that simply are not uh, how we would choose or desire to be treated or maybe choose to treat others. But what verse 9 is telling us is saying that, that, that's not, that, that's not, should be, that should not demonstrate exactly how you respond to those people who respond in, in that manner to you. Basically saying if someone is evil to you, that doesn't give you an excuse to repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You see, that's contrary to cultural teaching. You say, well, you have a harsh word for me? Well, let me see if I can have just a little bit of a harsher word back to you. You know, if you come in and, and, and you want to come at me with an argument, I'll come back to you with hopefully a stronger argument. And, and many times, that's what our inclination is. That's what the flesh says, is that we want to, we, and, and we want to ha- take on this battle if it's coming our way. We want to see if we can win, but yet Scripture teaches us that that's not how it should be. On the contrary, those who come at you with evil, you come back with blessing for that's what you were called. So where, where in the world does he get this idea? Let's see what Jesus says. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's a, a countercultural idea. That's not what is what we want to do in our heart, and that's you know, we understand that there's a battle between the spirit and the flesh all the time. What we we think would be good and, and how to respond, and yet what we should in Christ, how we should in Christ respond. Jesus also said, he said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, what did he say? Turn the other one. If someone takes your cloak, send them a bill for the cloak, right? Okay, we're listening. All right, we're good. No, he says, give them your tunic also. He said, he, he said respond with blessing. Don't respond in like manner. Respond with blessing. And it doesn't always come natural. You know, it also doesn't come natural, verse 8. Verse 8 and 9 aren't what we always want to do, but yet in Christ to demonstrate his love and to demonstrate his work in our life, we must uh, completely surrender to the Spirit's work in our life so that we can put away those fleshly desires. Verse 8 and 9 such a great key for how we interact with those in the church and outside the church. You know, on, on Wednesday nights, uh, some of our men in our men's Bible study are going through a book called Love Your Church. And I'm going to give you the summary if you're not a part of that group. I already gave it to them, and they keep coming back as well. But it, it basically is telling us that our life in Christ and in the church, it's not about us. It's about others, or or demonstrating Christ's love to others. It's about how we are a witness to others, how we are pointing people to Jesus, how we are glorifying our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with both our words, our actions, our thoughts, even our motives, and our attitude. As verse 10 says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue 
and his lips from speaking deceit? Have your lips and your tongue ever gotten you in trouble with the words that you speak? (laughs) I won't ask you to raise hands on that either, but we know it happens because sometimes that mouth moves just a little quicker than our mind and then even more quicker than our heart or our desire sometimes. But yet, if we desire to love life and see good days, let us keep our tongue from evil. And our lips from speaking deceit. Watch our words. And you see, this, these verses are here in, in to prepare the believer, the follower of Christ for the trial and the adversity that's coming. It's saying your relationships both with people in Christ and also those uh, yet to know Christ, hopefully, um, that matters in how you will handle adversity and trials. You see, Christ-centered relationships they prepare us for when that suffering and that difficulty comes. Continuing on verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This is not passive and and saying, I hope that peace comes my way. I hope that today is a peaceful day. It's saying, no, you have control over your life and how you respond to your circumstances and you are to actively seek peace in your relationships. Turn actively, turn from evil, actively pursue peace. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We don't like to hear that. The face of the Lord is against those that do evil, yet the Bible teaches us that our that evil, that sin, it separates us from God. It keeps us from God and knowing his blessings. But yet, the blessings from God, this is quoting from Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. As we pursue uh, the desire to demonstrate Christ in our relationships and how we interact with others, we receive blessings from God. It's, it's, It's phrased this way in verse 12, his listening ears are there for us in prayer and God's righteous people whom he regards with favor. He shows his favor to his people. What a great promise to know that as we pursue righteousness, as we pursue these, this way of demonstrating Christ in our relationships, we receive the blessings from God, but it's also preparing us because from verse 12 to 13, it, it transitions a little bit and there's a rhetorical question that's asked in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. I think that's a rhetorical question because the next, the, the next verse actually says, well, actually you, you might suffer for righteousness sake. So it's saying, yes, you, you may be zealous and pursuing what is good, but, but there is the potential that harm would come your way. You know, another, a way this question might be asked, you know, uh, straight from scripture, who will harm you if you're deeply committed to what is good? But you might've heard this question before. Why do bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that question and ever pondered that question? I'll tell you, in response to that question, um, there, while I was in seminary, there was an entire course called The Problem of Evil. And the entire semester, it didn't answer that question. <laughs> it was a pursuit to answer that question as clearly as possible, but yet it never was truly answered. People, uh, Christian leaders throughout the years have tried to answer that, give you the perfect answer. Why do good things or bad things happen to good 
people. But yet we see in Scripture here, it's taught that, that those things will happen, that, that, that harm and that, that uh, adversity will come our way. But we should expect to suffer for righteousness' sake. Why do you say that? Well, Peter is speaking here from firsthand experience. You see, they're experiencing persecution. Uh, really, they're experiencing persecution from all ends. They're, they're, they experienced persecution from Jews and Gentiles. When this was written, Christians, especially in Rome, were experiencing persecution by the Gentiles. Verse 13 is, is linked very carefully and closely to verses 10 through 12. But ultimately, we know that no true harm can be brought against believers. Because we see this question asked as, 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 as though this suffering is for a temporary time period. You see, there's nothing that in Christ, there's nothing that can be done that that would remove us from the blessings of Christ. There's nothing that that we can do that that would make us fall out. Once we are in Christ, there's nothing we can do that would make us fall out of favor and fall out of the blessings of God. But yet there is harm, there is trials, and there is suffering that could come our way. Just as we mentioned, I mentioned earlier in James chapter 1, uh, he speaks expectantly that these trials and suffering will come when he says, consider it great joy. My brothers, when you ex- whenever you experience various trials. So why should we experience it as joy? Why should we expect this suffering to come for righteousness sake? Why should we experience it and take it as joyful, as a good thing, as, as something that, that we don't turn away from? Well, Jesus tells us in, in Matthew, he says, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. You see, it's identifying us with our Savior. Because what is the greatest example of one being persecuted for righteousness' sake? It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says, be glad and rejoice, Jesus does, because your reward is great in heaven. You see, there may be temporary harm, there may be temporary affliction here on earth, but yet our reward, no, that's why I said no true harm can come to the believer in Christ because our reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is in essence saying it's happened before, it's happening with me, and it will continue to happen. But yet, your blessing, your great, the, the greatness of your reward is immeasurable and unknowable here on earth. But we still desire to be deeply committed to what is good, as we see in verse 13. Deeply committed, as your Bible might translate it, zealous. It is an appropriate definition and the way to describe this deep commitment to what is good. Another way to say it, perhaps, is an ardent pursuit of virtue, even in the face of persecution. So even when things aren't going our way, that being zealous for what is good, we are to seek what God wants for us. We are to seek his word and his plan and his instruction in our life. A similar thought is echoed in Romans chapter 8 verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us or who can be against us? We have confidence that as we go through trials of various kinds, suffering even for righteousness sake, we know that God is with us. We know, as we sang, as our choir sang before, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that as we sang and, and, and the congregation sang earlier, 
that Christ is our only hope in life and death, for he is with us. And again, Peter speaks expectantly, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, in verse 14, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, because Peter knew suffering. This is personal for Peter. He knew suffering was coming, not just generally. Maybe he's not looking at a group of people and saying, someone out here is going to suffer for the name of Jesus. He knew what was coming for him personally as he wrote these words. John 21, 18, verse 19, foretold Peter's death. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Your know, tradition holds that Peter was crucified upside down. And uh, he, he did not want to, uh, his crucifixion was not in the manner of Jesus. It was, he was crucified upside down. And he knew, he may not have known exactly how that would happen, but he knew, based on Jesus' words, he knew that some type of suffering was coming his way. So let's see the cycle of what's happened in Peter's life, though, to get to this point. Because, you know, Peter, he... Uh, he wasn't always this zealous for doing what was good or pursuing God's, God's desire and, and approaching things with this holistic view of Jesus Christ as Lord. For Matthew 26, in Matthew 26, verses 69 and 70, Peter even denies he knew Jesus. You remember that from, from Scripture? He denies and even grows frustrated, and he, he can't even hardly answer as by the time he's asked a third time whether he knows Jesus Christ, but yet... There's a, there's a change in Peter's life because we see a, a transition as he came into contact with the resurrected Lord and he saw the power of the resurrection in his own life and, acts, and the power of the Spirit's indwelling presence in his life. In Acts 5.41, Peter was just, had just been flogged by the Sanhedrin, but what it, it tells us in Acts 5.41, he went away rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. See, he went from denying Christ to saying, Lord... I'm just happy that I could get whipped just for your sake. I'm just happy that someone could come and flog me just because that is connecting me with my Savior, Jesus Christ. He went from denying Christ to teaching confidently to expect suffering. So what happened? He experienced the resurrected Lord. He experienced the power of the resurrected Lord in his life. And I tell you, today, as we think through that, maybe there's suffering, maybe there's trial, maybe there's adversity that's going on in your life. But have you encountered the resurrected Lord? Have you encountered the power of Jesus Christ in your life? Have, do you know what it's like that he's, he's, he's changed you from death to life? He's changed you from blind to with sight. He's changed, as we read a few weeks ago, from not a people to being his people. Have you experienced them in your life? You see, not just Peter, but all of Christendom knew that suffering was coming. Nero was the empire. Christians would be burned alive, fed to dogs, crucified, and faced other forms of extreme persecution. But Peter could still say, do not be afraid. Do not be disturbed. Yeah, I mentioned that class I took called the problem of evil you know that was a textbook academic study that's not what peter's going through right here he's saying we know it's real i know it's real but then in verse 15 he says but in your hearts honor christ the lord as holy 
So what is the connecting thought? What is the overwhelm, the, the, the holistic approach to trials and suffering? It's to know that Jesus Christ is Lord, and He is Lord over all. Verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It sounds interesting that this verse is here. You might have heard this verse just read, uh, out, taken out of this specific context, not in an inappropriate way, but just this verse to say, always be ready for, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Many times people will say, that's why you need to know what scripture teaches and you need to know what you believe and they'll use this verse as reasoning for it. But in the context, it's saying, yes, you need to honor the Lord Jesus as Messiah, the Savior in your hearts. And even in the face of adversity, our belief must be strong and our belief must be personal. And so the reason why I think this fits so well in this context is because when you're facing that difficulty, when you're going through the trial, when you're facing adversity, when suffering has come your way, when Peter was getting ready to to be crucified, perhaps, that was not the time for him to say, let me think, is Jesus Christ Lord? Do I know him as Lord? Because at that, time, at that point, his thinking is not clear. Just the same way, it's, it's tough for us to go through that suffering or that trial and say, well, now let me figure out what God is doing here. Is God in the midst of this? Is God in the midst of this suffering and trial? But to know this, I think verse 15 is telling us, to know in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has given you the only hope that you will ever need so that when you face that trial, that suffering, you are prepared to say, you know what, I, I know this isn't, this isn't fun. This isn't enjoyable. This isn't how I chose for this, this circumstance to happen. But yet, Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, the, verse 15 tells us to be prepared for an answer for the hope. So that we're prepared not just on joyful times. We should be prepared in joyful times. But we're prepared for the hope in the midst of trials and suffering. And verse 16 and 17 show us we are, by being prepared for that, we are doing it in a manner, again, as verses 8 through 12 indicated, that is reflective of Christ in how we treat others and how we respond in the midst of trial. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Very quickly, it's saying, you know what, in Christ Jesus, if suffering comes your way for righteousness' sake, saying God is with you, he will bless that. More or less, I think a, a, a secondary thought on here is if you're suffering for doing evil... You know, you kind of brought that on yourself. And uh, God will be with you. He's, with, he's gracious in those times. But he's saying, if you're suffering for doing good in the name of Jesus, that's where this is speaking. Or God's ears are open to you. His eyes are open to you. And his blessings and his favor are demonstrated in your life. You know, we are prepared in our attitude of how we face those difficult times. And then finally, in conclusion, verses 18 through 22... Draw it all together. As we see that our Christ-centered relationships, they prepare us for that suffering, for that trial, for that adversity that's coming our way. And we know that it's coming. We also know that Christ is our hope in the midst of suffering. And it's drawn all together by the idea that our suffering, our trials, our adversity 
identify us with Christ. As the first three words of verse 18 say, For Christ also. Your suffering for righteousness' sake, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he went through. He also suffered once for sins. And we know, those of us who are familiar with the Bible, we know how he did that, by taking on that punishment on the cross. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us. That he might bring us to God, that great ministry of reconciliation, that God, that he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, believers should not fear, even if pain and suffering is inflicted or come our way, rather we should be set apart. We should set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and be prepared to respond to that because we know the hope we have in Christ Jesus. Believers should not fear. We will be rewarded and blessed by God for that suffering. And for Christ, that suffering was the pathway to exaltation. And likewise, the same in our own lives. Then we get to verse 19 and 20. I joked with Pastor Luke this week. I said, I appreciate you uh, mentioning, including these verses and the text that, uh, that you, you shared with me so graciously this morning. And as I was reading through 19 and 20, there's a lot of different views of what exactly it's speaking of in, uh, in these verses and even uh, some discussion we could have. And I'd welcome that. You could uh, come and we can discuss it and we can see what all the different views are and prayerfully consider how God is leading us in those verses. But I, I lead you from verse 19, as it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he described verses 19 and 20 this way. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So if you're going to try to figure out what these verses mean, and you have these, these great you know, heroes of the faith saying, I'm not exactly sure what Peter's saying. So if you read those and you say, I'm not exactly sure what Peter's saying, you're in good company. But here's the overall theme I want you to see in verses 19 and 20, because I want clarity in what is being uh, uh, proclaimed in God's word here. Christ is victorious. Okay? And we can go debate exactly what that means. Who did Jesus go and, and proclaim? That who are these spirits that he went to? Where did he go to make this proclamation? Ultimately, verses 19 and 20 are showing us that Christ is victorious. He is over all. As verse 22 concludes it together, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We see this theme and we see it throughout scripture that Christ is over all. He is victorious. Verse 21 goes on to say baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verses, verse 20 had mentioned the flood in the days of Noah from Genesis chapter 6, and it's making a direct correlation to water and how water has been viewed throughout Scripture. As a, you know, in, in the flood, the flood water was viewed as destructive, uh, destroying the whole world. But now he's making a contrast that, as the end of verse 21 says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that baptismal water, the saving power of Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what brings it all together. It's through the power of his resurrection that brings the saving power. 
And so as we see my concluding thoughts for verses 19 and 20 is that sure we can discuss exactly uh, what exactly each word is meaning and what it's pointing to. But ultimately, ultimately we know in all suffering, adversity or difficult times, Christ is victorious. So why is this important? Some type of suffering or adversity will come. And the moment of adversity is not necessarily the best moment to decide what you believe. Because ultimately, sometimes in those moments, the the healing doesn't come. Sometimes the doctor's report isn't what we want to hear. Sometimes the child or the grandchild we pray for doesn't return. Sometimes the answer to our prayers is no, or not yet, or different than we wanted. I mean, honestly, sometimes the trial goes just a little bit longer than we wanted it to. So why is this important? Because it's important in the midst of that time that we draw on the hope of Christ. Maybe we can have the mindset of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as we're going through trials and suffering. As they said, as they're facing that fiery furnace, they said, you know, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Remember the next verse, though? But if not, even if not, let it be known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. May we have that same attitude as we go through trials and suffering. God, you know what? The answer might not be what we want. The response might not be how I would have laid it out. But let me say, even if you don't answer it and come through the way I would just say would be the best, I trust and I know, God, that your ways are greater than mine. That Jesus Christ is Lord over all. As we sang before, Christ is our only hope in life and death. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope we have in Christ Jesus. And that that is the hope of forgiveness and being in right standing before you, Lord. But it's not just that. It's that we know that because of that, because of the work of Christ and because of the promises of your word, that you are with us in the midst of difficulties, of trials, of adversity, of suffering, however we define it. Lord, as a result, may we surrender completely to you and live our lives for you in light of that hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.